the book of John. John chapter 11 has a very interesting story. In John chapter 11, what we have in this story is a story of a a dead man who comes back to life. And it's interesting to me because, well, we don't see that. The only time we ever read about it besides a fictional story is in the Bible, where it's a work of God. And it brings me to question, or, or ask the question then, Man, what would that be like to die and then come back? What would it be like to go to this person and ask them questions? See what they felt, see what they saw, what message they might have to teach me. This morning, we're going to begin in John chapter 11. What we're going to do is we're going to examine a couple different stories all along this line. You see, this morning, we're going to talk about if the dead could talk. We're going to examine different messages that people brought back from the dead. John chapter 11, starting in verse 38, we see this story of Lazarus. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus has been dead for four days. And like Martha says there, he he stinks. He smells bad. That if you remove this stone, that's all we're going to notice. And Jesus, calling on God, calls for God to, to answer his prayers. And he, call, he thanks him for hearing out to him, and he calls out to Lazarus to come out. And Lazarus does. And I can only imagine the faces of everyone around him, the faces of seeing this man who, who does stink come out after being dead for four days. The crowd that might have gathered around him, or gathered around Jesus, and asked, what, what happened? And the story then kind of tapers off. It goes into how Jesus is is sought out to be killed, and even Lazarus is sought out to be killed. But we don't see this reaction from the people. It's something that I I kind of just imagine. Because I think in in my own instance, I would react very strongly to this. I would want to go straight to Lazarus and find out what he would tell me. And so this morning, we're going to do that. We're going to look at four different stories, like I said, about people who do have a message from the dead. Turn back with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. 1 Samuel chapter 28. When we get to 1 Samuel chapter 28, what we have is King Saul losing, he has lost the favor of God. And he's about to go to battle. He's seeking out if he should go to battle. And as he prepares for this war against the Philistines, he seeks advice. And normally he would have gone to Samuel the prophet, but Samuel has been dead for a couple of years now. And he doesn't have that wisdom around him. So what Saul says to do is he goes to find a medium, someone who can speak to the spirits of the dead. And so Saul asks this medium in chapter 28 to bring the spirit of Samuel back to him. So if you'll pick up with me in verse 13. The king said to her, this is Saul speaking to the medium, do not be afraid, what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? 
And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Saul goes to seek advice from Samuel. But I'm pretty sure what Samuel says is not what Saul expected or would have wanted. You see, Saul seeks out advice to, to fight if he, how he should do it or, or if God is going to listen to him. And Samuel is, is, is very blunt and simple in what he says after coming back from the dead. You see, in verse 18, he tells Saul that because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Saul's transgression is clear. He hasn't obeyed God. And because of this disobedience, God has turned away from him. And the kingdom has been given to David. And so if Samuel could come back and speak to us today, if Samuel came back from the dead like he does for Saul, he would tell us something very simple. That we need to obey God. Saul's punished for his disobedience. And we saw that in verse 18. And if we obey God, if, if we change that to us, if we are the ones obeying God... That means we're going to put our faith in him by trusting that he will keep his promises, that he is listening to our, our prayers. We're going to put our faith into his word and use that to apply to our lives, to figure out how we should be living to glorify God instead of ourselves. We're going to worship him as he wants us to worship us. We're going to love one another, treating others as, as Christ treated people. And we're going to be kind to everyone. If we obey God and do all these things that he writes about, that he tells us about in his Bible then God's going to take care of us. He's not going to desert us like he does Saul because we're obedient to him. And if we're listening to what the dead say, then we're going to submit to the will and obey God. Not only does Samuel tell us this, it's actually echoed throughout other passages throughout the Old and New Testament as well. In Deuteronomy 13 verse 4, it says, You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. And the old law of the Israelites, it's there ingrained for them. That they're supposed to be listening to God, obeying Him, submitting to Him. And everything will be okay. Everything will, or He will care for them. In Acts 5, starting in verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. After being told they shouldn't be preaching in the name of Jesus because they don't, the Pharisees and the scribes don't like that, and it's, it's not the way they want it to be done, Peter and the apostles continue to preach the gospel. And here they're brought back, they're, they're, they're brought back for, for punishment or for judgment. And here we see they're, they're choosing to obey God rather than men because they understand that that's what's expected of them, and that's what's expected of us. Finally, in 1 John chapter 5, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. 
Loving God and obeying Him, submitting to His will, means keeping His commandments. It means looking at what He has said to us and asked us to do, asked us to do and obeying it. Putting aside our, our will or our pride so that we can submit to His desires. Obeying God requires me to humble myself, and that's a difficult task. It's very easy for me to say, well, God may have known what was going on with the Old Testament. God may have known what was going on when Jesus was walking the earth, but times have changed. I've grown up with these times. I'm able to work with these times. I know my life better than maybe God might understand. So I'm going to do, my, do me instead of submit to Him. Obeying God's will means we humble ourselves and put aside our pride so that we can submit to Him because He does know best. When we study the Bible, one of the most intriguing things about the Bible is that the times really don't change. Problems that were problems in the Old Testament and the New Testament are still problems we have today, just in different forms. And God's will or God's laws help us to avoid those temptations or avoid those pitfalls so we continue to walk with Him. If I'm obeying God, this means I'm going to obey God in how I handle temptation. Instead of choosing to give in to greed or anger or sexual temptation, I'm going to turn to God instead. I'm going to find a way to learn more about Him, dwell on Him, spend time with people of like minds to bring myself out of those temptations, to dwell on His thoughts, to understand how to handle those times where I want to give in to my anger or to my greed. If I'm going to obey God, that means I'm going to obey Him and how I raise my family. I'm going to look at His passages or His desires on, on how it should look in my household, how I treat my wife, how I raise kids when I have kids, how I handle my parents as I get older and feel more indiv individualistic, I guess. If I'm going to obey God, it means I'm going to use those ideas or, or His will in my family. Obeying God is, is clear from Samuel. If he could come back from the dead and tell us today, it would be a very simple message. And one that we all can do without much fuss. Because that all that means is we turn back to his word and, and understand what he has said to us. And apply it to our lives. Turn with me now to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 2. As we get to this passage in Mark, what we have is... Jesus has just passed through Israel, having just, or is passing through Israel, having just healed a boy in Bethsaida, and he brings up Peter and James and John on top of a mountain. Mark chapter 2, uh, Mark chapter 9, not Mark chapter 2, Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 2, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and let them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. Jesus is transfigured on this mountain. He's, he's changed to become radiant, intensely white as no one had ever seen before. 
And not only is he transfigured there, but two characters, two very important characters come back from the dead and are talking with Jesus. You've got Moses and Elijah standing there discussing different things with Jesus. Now, in my own opinion, this would be like, as a history major, this would be George Washington and Abraham Lincoln standing there before me and and just talking with each other. Man, would I love to sit there and pick their brains. Man, would I love to sit there and honor them for what they have done in their lives. And here you have Peter seeing these characters before him, these Hebrew characters who he's known, he's studied, and he says something to Jesus. He says, Jesus, it's great that we're here. Let's build temples for them. Or or let's, let's make tents for each one of you so that we can honor each one of you. And Peter doesn't really know what he's saying because he's frightened, he's terrified. He doesn't know how to handle the situation before him. But immediately as he says this, a dark cloud appears over the, or, or is cast over this mountain, and the words ring out that this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as soon as the cloud clears, the only one that's standing there besides Peter, James, and John is Jesus. Moses and Elijah are gone. The message in this story is very clear from these two characters who come back. Our focus is meant to be on Jesus. You see, these are two great Hebrew characters that deserve praise and glory, but Jesus is on another level. As soon as Jesus came, the focus then changes from these Old Testament characters to what Christ is doing. He is far more important than Moses or Elijah. Moses and Elijah appearing after death show us the importance of Christ. You see, these Jewish people would have held these characters in high regard, like I said. Moses led the Jews out of Egyptian slavery. He led the people through the wilderness. Elijah was a prophet to many of the kings of Israel and and of Judah, and he defeated false prophets on the mountain of Baal, or false prophets of Baal. These men have done great things in the name of God. But this is why that message is powerful. Because while these men are great, while these men have done wonderful things, Jesus is the real focus. Jesus is doing things that are greater, far more impactful than these men are. That's not to say that men like these, these Old Testament characters, are just to be cast aside. Just meant that our glory needs to be going towards Christ. Our focus needs to be on what he says, more so. And the message of, of focusing on Christ is echoed throughout the Bible. Colossians 3, chapter 1, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are of the earth. In today's day and age, it's very easy to be wowed by scholars and academia because they find fascinating and amazing discoveries all the time. And it's very easy to be amazed by leaders of men. As a history major, one of my favorite things was to go through and read stories about Alexander the Great or or Julius Caesar and Augustus and how they led their men through wars and, and even in, in peaceful times, though it wasn't really peaceful all the time for them, they were wonderful leaders of men. And it's very easy to get sidetracked and start praising things that they have done and start focusing more on men than I focus on Jesus. And we see throughout the New Testament and in this passage that if we're desiring to follow Christ, if we're obeying God, then we're going to set our minds on Christ, on things that are above, things that are not of this world. We're going to focus on what's really important. In Philippians 3, starting in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the, upper, for the prize for, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. What Paul's saying is here, or what Paul is saying here, is that he focuses on something more important than just things that would help him in his day-to-day life. He forgets what lies behind. He forgets his past as a persecutor of the church. He strives forward what lies ahead, the, the hope of glory, the hope of eternal salvation with Jesus. And he focuses on that because that's what's important in his life. And then it's important in our lives as well. In Hebrews 3, starting in verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Here in Hebrews, we have more succinct, succinctly than what I've been trying to say. Moses is still important. These Old Testament characters are still important. But Jesus is far more important than them. He's, it, as, as this writer says, it's like a builder of a house. The builder has more glory than the house does of itself. Jesus has more glory than the characters that have come before him, that have set the foundation. Because here is Jesus offering what we all hope for. Here is Jesus bringing that thing that we have all looked for, eternal salvation. As Christians in this day and age, if we're listening to these messages from the dead, then we need to understand that we need to focus on Jesus. That means making Him a priority in our lives. It's not just five minutes here and there. It's not just, oh, on Wednesdays and Sundays, I'll get, I'll get my Jesus for the week. We need to set aside time to study in His message. Maybe that's in the morning where things are quiet. Maybe it's at night after dinner as you're letting your food digest and things are winding down. Time to read in the Word and to pray to God and to ask Him for help or guidance in your life is so crucial to focusing on Him. Because when we forgot to forget to do these things, when we forget to reinvest ourselves in His Word or in our relationship with Him, why would we focus on Him? Why would we focus on something that is, or is slipping out of our lives? If we're focusing on Jesus, we're going to do these seemingly small things of studying and praying and connecting with Him through, through words and through uh, prayers. If we're also going to focus on Christ, that means we're going to use His life as a standard for ours. Jesus was perfect in all that He did. He is our example, the one we should strive to be like. And that may mean we're using His standards of life to judge our own actions by asking, is this something that Christ would do if He were here? If th- is this what Christ expects of me? Is this the best way for me to glorify him in my life? If Moses and Elijah could come back today, they would tell us this message, that we need to be focusing on Jesus. Turn with me now to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're going to talk about another Lazarus here than the one we uh, discussed at the beginning of the sermon. In Luke 16, what we see is a, a parable of Jesus. And Jesus uses parables to these great effect to teach different lessons and bring people to understand his, his message. But here we have Jesus using a parable to teach and rebuke an attitude of the Pharisees. Luke 16, start with me in verse 19. 
There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The rich man and Lazarus are two very different characters. And here in death, they are also two very different characters. You see, in life, Lazarus was poor and afflicted, and the rich man had everything he ever wanted. But in death, it's the rich man who is afflicted, and Lazarus getting comfort. And the rich man asks Abraham a couple things. But I want to focus on the second thing he asks in verse, uh, verse 27. Where he asks Abraham to send Lazarus to his household. To send him there to speak to his brothers so that they don't have to deal with the same fate the rich man is dealing with. But Abraham rejects this. He says, well, they've got Moses and the prophets to listen to. They've got things that they can change their life to. And the rich man says, no, no, they're not going to listen to him. They'll listen, though, to Lazarus if he comes back from the dead. And Abraham, again, rejects this idea, saying that if they haven't listened to what's already been said, then they're not going to listen to someone who comes back from the dead. Abraham's message is pretty clear in this passage. If he could come back, he would tell us that there's not going to be a new message. There's not going to be something grand coming in the next few years that will help us with an easier path to heaven that will help us to an easier path of salvation or a more comfortable path to salvation. There's not going to be a new message. We've been given our message with the Word of God before us. We need to be using that message. If the dead could talk, they'd tell us to stop looking for a new message because sometimes we do look for a new message. We want something simpler. The Bible has so many rules and so many regulations on our lives and what we can or can't do. I just want something simple where I can be happy and enjoy my life and still end up in in eternity with Jesus. We want something a little easier. You know, it's real difficult to say no to to, to a couple of things in my life. It's really, it'd be a lot easier if I could give in every now and then and still feel comfortable about my own salvation. Or maybe we want something that's a little more exciting, a little more pizzazz. Something that maybe interests us more and, and it's a little more easy to digest or, or, or fun to, to be a part of. These are they're new messages that we're hoping for. But here we see a very simple message and it's one that's echoed in Galatians as well. There's not going to be a new message. Galatians chapter 1 starting in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel of heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. There's not going to be a new message. And this is a problem that Paul had to deal with when he was alive. People were deserting to different messages or, or different gospels when they really weren't there. They were deserting the one true gospel because the other one sounded better or, or had more convincing speakers. Paul and Abraham echo this message for us. There's not going to be a new message. We don't need to be hoping or expecting something easier, easier or more flashy or more simple coming our way because we've been given our message. We've been given what God wants us to have. Abraham's message is clear, as is Paul's, that there is not going to be a new message. And finally, if you'll turn with me to the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, the writer reaches his uh, penultimate, if I use that word correctly, because I know I've used it wrong in the past, penultimate chapter to tell us of examples of faith. He's been building up all these ways that Jesus was, was meant to be, or why Jesus came, or why he was important. And now he gets to this chapter talking about why or what people did because they believed in this, because they had faith. Hebrews chapter 11, if you'll pick up with me in verse 31, or verse 32, I apologize. And, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should, not be made, or that they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I love what the author does here. He has spent so much time talking about main characters that people would know. But here at the end of his chapter, he just talks about different things that many people of faith went through. They suffered torture. They were cut in two. They were stoned. They were destitute, afflicted mistreated. But they did it for a reason. They did it because they were focused on Jesus. They understood the importance of Christ. And if they could come back and give us a message, the message would be that the walk is worth it. They went through so much pain and affliction and yet continued in their faith. Why? Because they felt that salvation and eternity with Jesus was worth anything that could happen to them on earth. 
Jesus felt that it was worth coming to this earth to save us. He despised the cross. He endured it. He endured the shame so that we can have salvation. Oftentimes in our life, we feel like things are difficult. And and they can be. They can be extremely difficult sometimes. We can face temptations that just feel so insurmountable that we just need to give up. We can be let down or disappointed by people in our family or in our lives. And it can make us discouraged to try and continue as Christians or or in our faith. We can look around or, or maybe think that God's not answering our prayers when we see a loved one die. Or when we see someone fall away. And it can feel really difficult to just keep on in our faith if we feel like nothing is working. But here we have such a powerful image. These people who had to deal with so much more than we have to deal with now because we don't fear going outside and being handcuffed and taken away to be tortured or imprisoned for our faith. We don't have that fear right now. And yet these men and women who had that fear, who had that trouble in their life, decided it was still worth it to keep their faith in Jesus, to keep on submitting to the will of God and following Him. Instead of fearing persecution for for our faith, the witnesses are telling us it's worth it. Instead of feeling frustrated by difficulties or a difficult walk, the witnesses are telling us it's worth it. Instead of feeling desperate or alone, the witnesses again are telling us it's worth it. And it's a message that not only is brought out in full force in Hebrews, but so many different authors use it throughout the New Testament. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul recognizes the difficulties that are in his life. He recognizes the persecutions, the sufferings that him and his fellow Christians are going through. And he also recognizes that those are nothing compared to the salvation to the reward that is coming. Difficulties come, to our, our, come in our life. But when we put it in its place to where difficulties are there, yes, but the reward is so much better than any difficulties I might have to go through, that reward should continue to encourage us and remind us that it's worth it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so we do not lose heart, Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I love what the author does in this passage because he reminds us that affliction is just light and momentary. It's It's fleeting. It's going to pass away. Eternity and salvation is is eternal. It's far longer than any affliction we might face today. And not only is this affliction light and momentary, but that glory is beyond comparison. We read passages or we sing songs that help us figure out maybe an image of, of salvation, of how it might feel to have our brothers and sisters surrounding us in eternity, to how it might feel to finally be at the feet of God and at Jesus. And no matter what we think it might look like or how it might feel, that glory, that eternity with Jesus is beyond any idea we might have. It's beyond any comparison to joy we might have in this earth or in this world. It's greater than any 
affliction or difficulties that we might face in our life. 1 Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Again, we get this idea that the affliction is momentary. It's going to happen for a little while. We're going to have to deal with difficulties for a little while, yes. But once it's over, God is going to restore us. He's going to confirm us as His children. And He's going to establish us with Him in eternity. And that's something we can all look forward to if we remember that the walk is worth it. Because of this message, we can understand that we can keep our heads up in our faith. There's going to be tough times. And we've all had those tough times. We all can think of times in our lives where we felt discouraged or alone or like God wasn't listening to our prayers. But God does hear our prayers. We are not alone in faith. And we have reason to keep up our faith. We're reason to be encouraged in our faith. When we look at this passage, we can understand that others have gone on before us dealing with difficulties and temptations and trials. And we can lean on their strength to help us get through our own. We can recognize that if they can do it through far tougher times than what we might deal with today, then we can do it as well. So when we look at all these lessons from the dead, when we look at what they have said to us, what they would bring back to us if they could come back and speak to us, we can understand a few different things. Obeying God helps us to remain in the care of God. I mean, it keeps us there in His comfort because we're obedient to submitting to His will. Following God is worth it. It's worth it to focus on Jesus. It's worth, a, worth it to put aside our pride and our, our own desires to submit to the will of God and to submit to Jesus. Following God is worth it to focus on the message we have instead of looking for something that is newer or more exciting or, or easier or more comfortable. It's worth it to use the one we have before us. Following God leads to salvation. When we understand that the walk is worth it, it means we're, we're putting our faith in Him. It means we're putting our faith in that salvation that He has offered and striving for it. And when we do this, when we have our faith, and when we realize that our, our walk, our faith is worth it, then we can be confident that God will care for us, and God will bring us home with Him, as long as we obey Him and follow His will. Appreciate your attention this morning. At this time, we're going to go ahead and be dismissed for our classes.